Welcome back to March Mad Men, the podcast devoted to determining what is the greatest horror movie of all time. This season, slasher movies are on the chopping block, and each show pits these usually masked murderers against each other, two by two, to determine whose movie is more killer. Our ghastly imitation of the NCAA tournament will culminate with one film rising above the rest to be named Slasher Par Excellence. We're still in the first round here, and as opposed to the painstakingly exacting autopsies that we'll give movies later on, these early shows are shoot-from-the-hip affairs that cover a lot of ground quickly. Hope you enjoy. So, without further ado, let me introduce myself and my co-hosts. I am John Evans, and I am joined, as always, by the Tech Avail screenwriter, Vic Wheat, and fully booked producer, Rich Eckersley. How y'all doing tonight, gents? Vic, I know it's been an eventful couple of weeks for you, man, right? John, it's been a a bit of a nightmare. Uh, If you notice a, a difference in my audio quality, it's because I am currently quarantining in a beach house in Texas after COVID has swept through my family like... Uh, a zombie plague through South Korea in Train to Busan. It's been challenging, but uh, we're we're hanging in there. We have not started eating each other yet. I've got my full James Brolin Amityville horror beard on, and uh, there's an axe in the garage. And I gotta say, it's it's uh, it's starting to look pretty good. I haven't had to chop any wood yet, but I'm starting to feel the urge. So I think I think we're getting there. Oh my. Well, hopefully there's no portal to hell in the basement. It's on the beach, John. The portal to hell is on the beach. I could live with a portal to hell if it was on the beach. I mean, how bad can it be? And how bad can you be tonight, Rich? You're kind of ominous in our lighting scheme here. We can see each other via Skype. Uh, You're a, a shadowy figure. Uh, what's going on? Does that mean your, your, your life is a film noir movie? Yes, it's a film noir where I stalk the streets at night, riding the subway, looking for inspiration. <laughs> no, I'm doing okay. You know, compared, compared to Vic, like, I can't complain. Um, I got Vic's dog. His name's Max. He's very cute. Um, he's staying with me a little longer than he expected to. The little pup's all right. He eats a lot for a little guy. Um, <laughs> you know, I wanted to invite him on the podcast, but he, he went to sleep for the night. So, you know, I'm trying to contribute to Vic's situation as, as much as I can so he can stay in that beach house forever. I'm doing okay. You know, we got a busy household over here. I got a snoring dog lying next to me. I'm ready to talk about some, some movies. I, I also wanted to, to, to shout out, I haven't seen it yet, but I've been really excited to watch a movie called We've Got to Do Something, which has Pat Healy from The Innkeepers. And Vic, my understanding is the whole concept is that it's about a, a family turning in on each other uh, as they lock down in a storm. Maybe you should check it out. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound very realistic to me. 
Actually, on that note, though, I do want to shout out uh, to our, our listeners and to you two as well. If you haven't seen it, there's a movie on Shudder called Lucky that is written by and starring the actress who played Maya in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. And it is a very interesting film. I will say it is a horror film as, like, metaphor in, like, big glowing letters, metaphor. Uh, so I, I wouldn't go into it expecting to be scared out of your wits. But she has some very compelling things to say about women in horror films and, and violence against women as general. I, I sort of was initially skeptical of it, and by the end I was I was really taken with it. And as I've watched more and more of these slasher films, have found myself thinking about it a lot. So Lucky on Shudder, check it out. It's, it's genuinely worth the watch. Well, hopefully it's still on Shutter wherever uh, you guys and whenever you are listening. But uh, plug it into JustWatch.com. Um, hopefully that's still around, and uh, maybe it'll tell you where it is. By the way, that beer I cracked open at the start of our show was the Kona Classic Pipeline from Kona Brewing Company. Guys, uh, I know we just started the show, but uh, do you have any beverages going? Being trapped in Texas, I do not have access to many of the the beers that I usually would. And I, and I should say, I don't want to malign the state of Texas. I'm in the middle of nowhere in Texas, and so the beer sources are a little bit dry. So I am currently drinking a 16-ounce can of Yingling traditional lager, which I usually enjoy just because I drank a shit ton of it in college. And I can't get it in California. So whenever I'm somewhere and I see it, I go, oh, my God, I have to get it. And then I have it. And then I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not in college anymore. This is this is just beer. Is that a Pittsburgh beer? <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is a Pittsburgh uh, beer. Yeah, I've only had it in, uh, when I was in Philadelphia. That was like my exposure to, to, to Yingling. <clears throat> but uh, I, I remember really liking it. So I'm, I was excited to see you to see you have it. It's fun. You know, it's fine. It's pretty good in Texas. And by the way, you're not even in the middle of nowhere in Texas, Vic. I mean, like you're you're Galveston adjacent. That is the home of many uh, many shadowy novels and uh, unsolved murders. That's a great town. It is, and it's it's a scant thirty minute ferry ride from the uh, peninsula that I find myself on. So yeah, is that all? Uh, Rich, yeah. are you drinking anything yet? I am wrapping up a, a Chardonnay, and I've got a a Voodoo Ranger IPA on deck. Nice. Um, don't worry, I'll, I'll get into a pizza port later in the show. But <laughs> for right now, I have a, I have a few mixed packs left over from uh, some family that was in town. Not that I got anything against New Belgium. I love New Belgium, and I'm happy to have it in the house. So I'm excited to crack it open. Yeah, I have a bizarre motley crew of, of beers in my fridge, too, owing to the holidays and various events and stuff where I either brought or took home. or Yeah, it's, it's kind of st- strange and crazy. But speaking of strange and crazy, those are the characters that we're here to talk about. And of course, I mean slasher killers. And we've got one in the first movie under discussion tonight, which is Happy Death Day. And it is the number one seed in our meta division, and it's squaring off against Fear Street 78. Oh, boy, we are getting spicy right out of the gate. That is a 16 seed, which means it's a lightly regarded contender. 
And uh, just to let you know, if you uh, are new or uh, would like a refresher, the meta category are slasher films playing with subgenre conventions overtly or subtly. A horror comedy like Happy Death Day would fit in here, even if it's not blatantly deconstructing tropes the way, say, Scream does, for example. And uh, let's, uh, let's kick it off. Rich, tell us about Happy Death Day. I'd be happy to, John. So Happy Death Day is a movie that ranked pretty high in my, you know, initial like master big list of slashers. Uh, I think it was definitely my number one seed in terms of of metas. Uh, it came out in 2017. Um, I think it's pretty fair to label this movie. It's you could call it a slasher film. It's almost more of a of a of a black comedy and with a little bit of like thriller mystery thrown in. It's directed by Christopher Landon, who was the writer of Paranormal Activity 3 uh, and also went on to write and I believe direct uh, some of the later Paranormal Activity films. <clears throat> but we all know that Paranormal Activity 3 is a is a fan of the podcast. It stars Jessica Roth. Uh, it could be Rothy. I don't know. I do all my research in print. Um, but we're just going to call her Jessica Roth for the purposes of, of this. It's produced by the great Jason Blum and his Blumhouse Productions banner. It's basically about a college girl who's a completely entitled piece of shit who is murdered on the night of her birthday and begins reliving the day repeatedly, a la Groundhog Day, at which point she sets out to find the killer and stop her constant death. The movie, and this is, I'm finding that this is a rarity with the films that we have on this podcast. This movie was actually a commercial success. Uh, it grossed a worldwide total of 125.5 million against a production budget of 4.8. It spawned a totally worthwhile sequel called Happy Death Day to You, which is not a horror movie at all, but more of a comedic exploration of time travel in the vein of the Back to the Future sequels. It really launched the directing career of Christopher Landon, who went on to direct Freaky, who is another contender in this series. Spoiler alert. I'll admit, I've actually kind of been bummed to not see Jessica Roth's career go much of anywhere after this movie. Like, she is, has taken on, like, a bunch of, like, indie roles and, like, some sort of, like, middling, like, television parts. And I really think her charm and, like, comic timing, her facial expressions are the thing that make this movie sing, especially in the middle of the film where time and death, which once rendered, like, Bill Murray in, in Groundhog Day as, like, modeling and morose, instead, like the character of tree like really comes alive, like winking and eye rolling and like making death into sort of a party for this movie. It's also worth noting that the mask for this, the, uh, the baby mask, which is a very polarizing um, image in the, the horror genre was constructed by Tony Gardner. Who's the same guy who built the ghost face mask from every single scream film. As far as like how the movie plays, I'm actually really interested to hear your take because ultimately, ultimately, I'd say that this is a much, much more successful meta approach to the slasher horror as the maligned uh, final girls. It's basically about a hapless young woman who's put in a situation that she can't escape the trappings of that being the slasher genre. No matter how hard she tries, it's only through learning a few important lessons about herself falling in love and making amends with her family and processing her own grief that she breaks the cycle. And so even though it's very light on blood, 
There's a fair amount of slashing in this thing, though. The twisted way that it makes light of the fact that Tree is violently murdered over and over again throughout the film through multiple stabbings, vehicular kills, poisonings, drownings, and one exceptionally paced car explosion sequence. You know, it's not the first film to repurpose Groundhog Day, but with compliments to something like Edge of Tomorrow or Palm Springs, like I'd argue it's probably the best and most practical use of the technique. Uh, and it's awesome to see it employed in a slasher format. You know, so this is sort of cute and normie friendly, but it's also crafted with such zeal for those collegiate 90s slashers in particular that it is the kind of thing that I think typically brings horror fans back again and again and again and again, myself being included. What do you guys think? Well, uh, well put. Rich, but uh, before we get into that, let's let's keep the suspense going a bit longer, and let's introduce its opponent tonight, and then we'll double back and have them go toe-to-toe, and we'll talk about both films. And that, of course, leads us to Vic championing Fear Street 78. I can't wait to hear this! <laughs> Ye gods... I can't wait to hear this. All right. Well, I'll have you both know that I spent a fair bit of time on this because, as you know, I am truly a champion for Fear Street 78. It is the the Detroit Lions of <laughs> this tournament, and uh, I, I, I have an emotional investment in it, and I want it to succeed. So I'm going to go off on a bit of a rant here and let you guys just just roll with it. Okay, because we might not get to talk about it again. It will be spoiler-free. However, I really just want to say, there are a lot of things to love about Fear Street 78. I think the performances are strong. I think it's another excellent period-specific soundtrack, which is one of the cool things about this movie, the, the, this series of movies. The soundtrack tracks with the, uh, the era in which the movies take place. I think it finds some compellingly subtle ways to undermine the tropes of the genre far more effectively than most of the other films in this meta bracket. So on our text chain, John has mentioned his distaste for a particular scene late in the film between Cindy and Alice and involves them reconnecting as friends. I could not disagree more, John. There's a particular detail that carries through the film and pays off in that scene in a way that I think pulls the whole film together and, wait for it, it's Cindy's shirt. See, in the opening scenes at Camp Nightwing, she and her boyfriend Tommy are cleaning the floors. Cindy actually curses when she stains her shirt. Now, that she curses so rarely that it's something that Tommy actually makes a comment about. Now, later, when they're looking for Sarah Fear's house, with Alice and Arnie, she snags that same shirt on a branch and she again curses at having torn it. Her general lack of profanity, her near pathological commitment to perfection in her life, demonstrates her belief that such perfection is her only way out of Shadyside. She believes that that is the path to escape her cursed hometown and her commitment to it has destroyed her relationships with her younger sister and her best friend. But as she's explaining this to Alice in this final, in this this scene that John uh, uh, so hates, and she's finally admitting that she is cursed, that her town is cursed, that there's no way out, that she was naive to think that she alone could get out of it. She's tearing that shirt to shreds to help out to help set Alice's injured injured leg. 
She's given up on the idea of perfection and accepted that she is, in fact, doomed. That is the character and thematic arc of this film. The young, virginal, responsible, quintessential final girl accepts the hopelessness of her situation, the fact that she's cursed, and in so doing, heals her relationship with her sister and her best friend. And even though the film offers a necessary glimpse of hope for them in the third act, the director, Lee Yaniak, has no qualms about crushing it completely. Now that's a subversive take on the slasher film. Imagine if Happy Death Day featured Tree learning from her Groundhog Day experience that life is a Sisyphean exercise in hopelessness. She escapes her repeated round of rebirth only to immediately kill herself. Christopher Landon's film is breezy and fun, and I'm a fan, but it's the orphanage. It wants to leave you with the warm fuzzies, and I prefer my horror with a shot of existential nihilism. Now, I appreciate that the central relationships are A, well-developed, and B, different than the usual romantic entanglements one expects from a summer camp slasher. The central relationships are between sisters and friends, and they prove more interesting than the random hookups in the burning, for instance. There's a burgeoning romantic relationship between Nick Good and Ziggy, but its art turns out to be as nihilistic as the rest of the film. I will point out, watching it the third time, the subtitles revealed a great joke that I didn't catch initially when Nick catches Ziggy preparing a bucket of red paint to dump on a particularly cruel fellow camper. He tells her to carry on, but only in the subtitles do you realize that carry is spelled C-A-R-R-I-E. Loved it. A couple other little things that I that I really enjoyed about this. There's a scene in which the, the counselor from Shadyside, Joan, has sex with Kurt, who's from Sunnyvale, uh, and, and has the great line, you know, Shadysiders do it best. Afterwards, she sits up to get, get dressed, and instead of lingering sort of lasciviously on her body, the camera quickly pans up from her feet to her face. Now, what she does is put on one of Kurt's shirts and leave it unbuttoned which I would argue winds up being more sexy than having her traipse through her final moments totally naked. It's one of those moments that made me understand the concept of the, the male gaze, especially as it's uh, espoused in slasher films, by way of its absence. Yanni, again, subtly undermines the misogynistic tropes of the genre while also making a film that's arguably more titillating than anything from Friday the 13th. And finally... John has also texted what I think is uh, uh, the most subversive element of the film. See, the director has absolutely no compunction about murdering the campers, children. There's not another slasher film in this competition that's had the cojones to drop an axe on a cute, bespectacled 12-year-old and then later let the camera linger on his dismembered arm. John, your text in regards to this moment said, eh, life sucks, I guess. Remember what I said about thematic undercurrent of nihilism running through this film? Boom. There it is. This film has a ruthlessly brutal streak that simmers under the glossy finish of the film, making it, for me, more effective than a lot of the more traditional lurid films in the competition and darker and more disturbing than their better finance studio counterparts. The bottom line is this movie is well-made, funny, sexy, subversive, and violent. It's got Everything you ask of a good slasher in spades, all of it in support of a stronger, more well-developed characters and themes than you're likely to find anywhere else in this competition. It's not perfect. 
There's a feeble attempt at executing a twist in the final minutes that doesn't work, but I genuinely believe there's far more to unpack in this movie than there is in Happy Death Day, which I've now seen three times and enjoy. I like Happy Death Day, but I've seen it three times. I've got everything there is to get out of Happy Death Day. This movie has more going on than that. Okay, well, that really was passionate, and I, I, I certainly got the vibe that you were going for broke as though this is the only night we'll ever talk about this movie, and God willing, it is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a 16 versus a 1, guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it all on the line. No, no. I mean, look, I, I've always understood what you see in it. I just don't agree with it. And, and sorry, Rich, I think like the most logical thing is for me to respond to him. We can't wait for you to weigh in to see you're going to break the tie on this. But before we talk about Happy Death Day, yeah, let's spend a little bit of time on Fear Street 78. My first question, and I have my own thoughts, but I feel like the, the first thing to do is kind of pose a question to Vic. Didn't you think the whole sunny side versus... Uh, Sunnydale versus Shadyside nonsense. It, it to me, it doesn't work as a metaphor for life. And so many of the concerns of these characters, they don't mirror, they don't symbolize in this fantasy, childish, fable way that literature for kids takes real real life and puts it through the filter of Narnia or whatever to to, metaf- to create metaphors that are powerful and universally true. How, how does this resonate with you? I mean, like, explain to me, I mean, obviously we have rich people and we have poor people and we have good sides of town and we have bad sides of town. But to me, this nonsense of this curse, it did not there's no reality to that at all. We don't actually have curses in real life. So maybe explain to me the, how the thematic significance of this is actually relevant to real life. Well, John, you glossed over it. I mean, the thematic, the thematic relevance is classism. It is that there are rich, pretty people whose lives are substantially better than people who have less money and less means and less opportunity. And so you wind up trapped in that. And that's not just a, a, a fairy tale. That's real life. That's what, real life. Exactly. Why don't we need this convoluted fantasy metaphor to make people understand that? I just, you know, uh, that that's the thing that I don't get. Like, don't we all know about that? Like, you're not illuminating anything to any of us. Like, wow, now I finally get it because of this, like, this town that's like, it's blessed, and then there's the cursed town. Now I understand, like, why rich people are rich and poor people are poor. Like, it's not illuminating anything that the average sixth grader didn't already know about life in the world. It's not about illuminating, John. It's about connecting. It's about feeling seen. Movies don't tell stories about people like that. Tree in fucking Happy Death Day, and again, I like that movie. She's not wanting for money. She's not having a hard time. She's not a she's not a, a, a shady cider. She's a sunny veiler. Let's put aside for a second, like the direct movie it's up against. Um, are you saying that like the people in slasher movies are usually rich? I'm saying that this movie connected with the person that I was at 14, 15, 16 okay. in a way that no other film in this competition does. Okay. And it speaks to that directly in a way that, that, that other movies don't because it has that undercurrent. That matters. It doesn't, have to, it doesn't have to illuminate. You don't have to tell me something I didn't know. 
but you have to connect with me emotionally. You have to connect with the, the person that I am. And I don't think there's another movie in this competition that connects with me emotionally the way that this film has. That's that's evident. Well, just for me, one of the reasons that I'm surprised that Vic, who is by any measure a more accomplished screenwriter than I am, likes this movie so much, is that to me, the script is about as clunky as an 85 Chevy citation. He said that as a writer watching High Tension, it was painful, the twists and convolutions of that plot. But this movie, he truly enjoys. I just, you know, I'm mind blown on that. Every character relationship is painfully uninteresting. The script grinds to a screeching halt every few minutes to quote-unquote develop each relationship in a combative, charmless conversation that feels about as real as your average student film. This is true to a degree in the first Fear Street movie to me, but in this one, those conversations dominate the running time, and I found them vastly more awkward. The thuddingly bad dialogue makes these characters seem like angry narcissists devoid of individual personalities. Each of them is a type defined largely by his or her side of that Sunnyvale shady side fence. To me, none of it is remotely memorable even after two viewings in the last few months. The one halfway decent dynamic in my eyes between characters is between that future sheriff and Ziggy when he surprises her with his knowledge of Stephen King books and willingness to lock the mean girl in the shithouse with a bunch of creepy crawlers. It works for a little while, but ultimately even this dynamic in this relationship plotline goes nowhere. What do we know about the Sheriff Good character in these two movies that is interesting? He doesn't seem to have any real dramatically satisfying transformation or deterioration based on traditional dramatic principles of character arc, catalysts, pressure, guilt, wounds, weakness, tragedy, nothing. He just kind of drifts through the movies, sometimes resisting his helpless destiny just a bit, sometimes embodying whatever heartless or helpless system is at work here. I confess that I don't really know what we're supposed to think of him or his story, but I can tell you this. I'm too bored by it to care. And I think that that is, you know, in a limited time frame, an emblematic critique of the film. And so that's why I chose to highlight it. And before we turn it over to Rich, Vic, do you have any direct response to anything that I just said? Absolutely. What goes on between Ziggy and Sheriff, uh, Sheriff Good, he's not Sheriff yet. What goes on between Ziggy and Nick Good is one of the highlights of the film. And I do enjoy the relationship precisely because it's one of the, the, the few that bridges the uh, shady side Sunnyvale uh, gap. But what you find in the film, what makes it satisfying, is that the gap is too big. They can't make the leap. She can't get out. He can't cross over. It's too much. It, it absolutely speaks to the nihilism of the film that, that their romantic subplot goes nowhere, as it absolutely should. All right, Rich, help us out here, man. Sort, sort, sort out this, this kerfluffle for us. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, wait, okay, so well, first of all, we've got to save some time for the rest of the show. So I'm gonna, So I'll make my thoughts brief. I did not pour over this film as you guys did because I knew that you would do the work for me. But there are a few things that I will mention. First of all, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but we are 
assessing films in the slasher genre, um, not the teen drama relationship, socioeconomic <laughs> analyzation uh, genre. Touche. Um, although that, that stuff is valuable, Vic, as you know, I, I appreciate plot, I appreciate character, uh, and I like to see stuff that is unique. I do think that this film does that, or at least aspires to do that for the most part. But first, let me address the first part. The slashing in this movie is legit. While I wish that Tommy uh, spent more time in the mask and less time running around as a, as a deranged camp counselor, you know, you cannot deny that the, the kills in this movie, time, care, money, like people who want to see effects like executed uh, were involved in this. And like, I appreciate that because we don't always get that. Also, I'll say I watch this thing on headphones as I do with many movies. This thing has excellent gore sound design. There's not, there's not another movie that I can think of that had as much gurgling, splashing and splatting every time someone got killed. And it really <laughs> brings that element of it to life and yet somehow like the kills felt a little more lifeless than what I would find in a Friday the 13th movie. This thing was was kind of missing the fun. And while the relationships were strong, like the dialogue was so padded and redundant, you know, I mean, like the whole movie is 30 minutes too long, um, at least, um, if not more, partially because of the fact that it has this like extremely prolonged tie in to the rest of the series that is that is truly tiresome by the time you're done with the 78 story. If it had ended in camp, honestly, I would have liked this, this story much more. But, you know, it has to tie it in the larger mythology of the series, which I understand because they're doing a trilogy of films. But still, I feel like there could have been a more economical way of to doing it without dragging me back into another film and then dragging me back into yet another film at the end. With its oppressive needle drops telling me how I'm feeling from second to second, I mean, we're literally talking every 20 seconds. Like, yes, I'm impressed with their music budget. It's great. But I'm also exhausted by them constantly pressing me for every nostalgic emotion they think they can wring out of me, especially when you're doing it to introduce every single character for the first 30 minutes. I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like this movie was... A lot of things that Vic is saying it is. I think it's very thoughtfully written, and I agree that I, I am wildly impressed um, with the work of the director, especially when you take in, into account the scope of these three films and having to direct all three of them. Like that is an accomplishment, and I think that they're they're very well executed, especially with that in mind. But at the end of the day, I also feel like this thing ultimately adds up to two excellent episodes of Stranger Things. And not a whole lot more. And, you know, there's a world in which you could say that, like, Happy Death Day amounts to, like, two excellent episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and nothing more. And I don't know that I could really, like, argue with you too much. But I do feel like while this movie is interested in exploring that sort of, like, V.C. Andrews style of drama amongst teens, for me, like, Happy Death Day is just reeling with a joy from the genre that I find infectious, even if I can't parse apart the relationships quite as much as as you can with this one move that's our first dc andrews reference on the podcast i think <laughs> but it's appropriate stein andrews yeah they're kind of swimming in the same water all right that was great let's put a pin in that map and double back to happy death day at this point 
I don't have as much to say about it. I don't think uh, any of us will. Um, not that that's a slight on the film, but I enjoy... It's a slight on the film, No, John. it isn't a slight <laughs> on the film. <laughs> you know, yeah, pr- you know, conjuring strong emotions is certainly uh, notable. But if if it's completely love-hate, that means half the audience is going to be happy and the other is not, whereas the entire audience can enjoy Happy Death Day. But let's put that aside for now. I enjoy this movie a lot. I wish I could get my wife to watch it with me, uh, which is definitely an example of normie-friendly cinema, But because I, I really believe she would enjoy it as well. But she's too convinced it's scary and tense, and there's too many jump scares, and, and she doesn't enjoy that kind of experience. But it's not a horror movie, and I will freely admit that, honestly, let alone a slasher movie. Now, don't you know? Tie me up in my words because we'll we'll get to how much that matters when we debate between which one one of these films advances. I can get behind it being here in the meta category because it is definitely deconstructing slasher movies. But in the tradition of Final Girls, just because something is deconstructing slasher movies doesn't mean it is one or even a horror movie at all. Happy Death Day is a little more committed to the genre than that movie is, which I very much appreciate, but it doesn't meet a lot of my criteria for this tournament. The kills are all throwaways, zero gore or shock value to any of them, and I could really see this movie getting a PG if it weren't for the basic subject matter. There's a little tension here and there as Tree is stalked by our cherub-faced killer, but a spork has more edge than Happy Death Day. Because of the very premise, Tree being murdered becomes immediately meaningless beyond the necessary but still toothless concept that this can't go on forever, right? Eventually, she's really going to die or something. I don't know. I, I think this is a much better movie than Final Girls as it's funnier. The protagonist's character arc from bitter bitch to healed human it really works and the killer is still more classically menacing and less cartoonish than the killer in final girls. But I was a little surprised watching it a second time uh, in my life uh, this time for the show, how little it really fits the paradigm that we're striving for. For me, it would be truly more worthy of a top seed, which it has if it did what it was parodying or playing with at a, at a high level while at the same time turning that model on its ear. Hell, I think, as, what, say what you want about Scream, I think it's arguable that Scream does a better job because it is a real slasher movie while also being about slasher movies. Yeah, it's, it's almost like Scream should have been the number one seed. <laughs> Fuck no, you, Vic. No, it is, no, it is not like should be in the number one seed. <laughs> uh, Vic, Vic, you you might be. I might be coming around a little on that one. Uh, certainly more than I am on Fear Street uh, seventy eight. Vic, what what do you think about Happy Death Day, man? I like Happy Death Day. Right, breezy is the right word for it. It's fun. Rich, you're absolutely right. Jessica Roth is astonishing in it. She's terrific. I I had the exact same reaction where when I was finished watching this again. I looked her up and was like, oh, that's all she's done? And I don't mean that as a slight. Like, look, Hollywood's a tough town. But she's clearly a very talented actress. She really sells this part. To me, it has that final destination sheen to it. Like, that's what it feels like to me. But it's also really well directed in the sense that it has that vibe of, like, weird things going on. Like, I love the first time she wakes up, she walks outside, and you see – 
the sprinkler goes off and the car alarm goes off and it's they, they create this sense that things are just odd even though sort of every day and it felt very much to me like a final destination movie where you're looking around and thinking oh my god which one of these things is going to kill me the problem for me as a as a slasher film especially is that once you establish the the premise there's no stakes right like it's we're watching the same person get killed over and over again but none of it means anything even when her boyfriend may or may not get killed Spoiler alert, I guess. It doesn't matter because she just dies again and he comes back to life. And so it, in that sense, it, it fails for me more on the horror front. Just to stress, because I feel like we went through this with the, the some, some movies in the haunted house genre as well. It's a good movie and it's fun. And like I don't want to take anything away from it on a sort of macro level for that. But as a slasher film... It doesn't have any stakes, uh, and it's honestly it's an inch deep. Uh, so it's I've gotten everything there is to get out of it. I like it. I like the performances. I like the directing. I like the characters, but it's not for me a serious contender in this tournament. Wow, weird. Like we kind of agree on that, Rich. Uh, what are your other thoughts about it? I think an inch deep is kind of a, a low blow. Yeah, that might be too harsh. Um, yeah. I mean, like you said, like there is a distinct character evolution for her throughout this film. You also like introduce and come back to same characters multiple times, whether it's the, you know, the sort of like would be boyfriends, like the the storyline with like her family, the story about her mother. There are definitely like layers of her story. And what this thing does is it sort of like teases those out across the, the course of the movie um, by pretty like I think like definitely weaving between like multiple plots. Look, the argument is sound that like this is not like it's funny because it's one of those movies that's like in my memory I remember it being bloodier than it is. Like I was shocked to, to realize that it was like it was it's only a PG thirteen film um, when I when I like turned it back on. But then I watched it and I was like, okay, yeah, sure, I, like I can see that. And the setups for the kills are pretty good. They just it just always like turns away at the at the last minute. Um, I do think it's interesting, like, Vic, you mentioned, like, the, the lack of nihilism in the in the movie. But, like, this, this movie's noted for having the original ending is that she dies for good. And it tested so poorly that they changed it. I've seen the alternate ending. It's also not good. But for what it's worth, like, it was, did not always have, like, the, the sort of rosy ending at the at the end of it. Yeah, it's a it's a tough it's a tough needle to thread. I mean, like I I'm with you, John. I, th- I think that like part of my perspective on this movie is colored by the fact that I have had several very enjoyable viewings because this is a movie that I like showing to people and that is accessible while not watering down what I like about the genre too far. Um, it still retains enough. I'd almost like backtrack to like Vic, you're saying like it's not a slasher. I'd argue that it is a slasher. It's just not quite a horror movie. And that's sort of its problem. It's a valid argument, but I, I do think it has validity. How much validity is having this competition? I, I don't know that I could see it going beyond this round, certainly for those, for those criticisms, but I could see it going beyond this round. You're right. It, I mean, it does have a solid like character arc and, and, and that stuff is all very well executed. It's just a Hallmark movie character arc where a girl stops being a total bitch and agrees to, to look past people's financial well-being. And that's great. The other thing I'll say is if you ask Christopher Landon to chop a 
10-year-old boy with glasses into pieces with an axe and then let the, the camera linger on his dismembered pieces, he would run screaming from the room. Anyone listening to this that hasn't seen that movie would be like, oh my God, is this Faces of Death? No, it's the PG-13 <laughs> representation of what Vic just said. I promise they you. Killed the campers. It's PG-13. No I mean, okay, this movie... kids. Fear Street 78 is not actually a PG-13 movie. Uh, it has more gore than a Happy Death Day, but it is as close as you can get to the PG-13 representation of what Vic is describing. It is not as nihilistic... Kids. Vic, there's I, no other movie that does that. It and it barely it barely registers. It barely registers. How many kids did Jason Voorhees kill in eleven fucking Friday the Thirteenth movies? All I can tell you is I could give a shit about the Who way this say? movie handles it. It doesn't work, Vic. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple random thoughts about Happy Death Day, and then that I wanted to mention, like just little factoids. Uh, and then let's let's vote on this thing. I sure wish they got the rights to use 50 Cent's It's Your Birthday song as Tree's phone alarm. That's in the trailer, and it kills. The same scenes with this generic, terrible, annoying song in the actual movie do not have the same energy or entertainment value. Uh, the dinner scene, the diner scene, rather, was shot a few blocks from my apartment, even though it's been defunct since COVID hit. I recognize the exterior in the Burger King next door. Kim, my wife, has lived in the Valley for a lot longer than I have. She watched the scene. She's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Corky's. She's been there multiple times. This movie is set in Louisiana, but for some reason, I don't know why they, they set it in Louisiana, but uh, yeah, the location was Sherman Oaks. Oh, and I had a one-night stand with Christopher Landon's sister. All right, so let's talk about... <laughs> ah! <laughs> let's talk about outcomes here. <laughs> for me, like, let's start with me and then Vic, and then Rich will decide it. Plan 9 from Outer Space would have a realistic shot at beating Fear Street 78 for me. <laughs> so my vote was cast weeks or months ago, right? It doesn't matter what it was up against in this tournament. Enough said. Vic, take it away. I'm sorry. Um, which one are you voting for? <laughs> <laughs> I'm voting for Happy Death Day. Thank you. Oh, got it. Sorry, I thought you were voting for uh, uh, Plan 9 from Metal Space. Okay. Um, yeah, I am uh, uh, obviously, and again, with all due respect to uh, Happy Death Day, which is a, a fine, enjoyable film, I am voting for Fear Street 78. I enjoyed Fear Street 78 more on this viewing, which I think was my second viewing, maybe my second and a half. I think maybe I fell asleep on one of them. But I did stay awake for this one, and I paid attention. And I enjoyed it more, I think, thanks to Vic's passion. I do like it. I just don't think it's going down the Hall of Fame of, of, of anything. And you can call Happy Death Day soft, but I think it is totally unique in terms of the role it's playing in this competition. Its life may not be super long, um, but ultimately, at the, at the end of the day, I have to go with the thing that I personally enjoy more. And I would gladly sit down to Happy Death Day again and finish it start to finish instead of getting to what I think is the end of Fear Street 78 only to realize I have another 45 minutes to go. <laughs> so, uh, but yes. Happy Let's instead watch the Groundhog Day ripoff that asks at the end, hey, have you ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? I, I admit that, that that line at the end is definitely a mistake. <laughs> uh, I'm changing Fine. my vote. I'm changing my vote. <laughs> 
<laughs> Do it, John. <laughs> no, because I would stick hot needles in my eyes before watching this movie again. Um, and of course, I keep saying this movie. You, you know, y'all know I'm talking about Fear Street 78 when I say that. Okay. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think that's clear. Uh, okay, yeah. well. I, I feel like so like a huge weight is off my shoulders just knowing that this is done, the deed is done, and we have slit the throat of Fear Street 78 and thrown it off the boat, and it is now bubbling away as it, it sinks to a watery grave, and we can have violent cutaways to Sarah Fear going, in the camera, <laughs> which I fucking hate, by the way, <laughs> and I'm so it's over. It'll be more violent than anything in Happy Death Day, you fucking pansies. Yeah, like you know what? You had your chance to opine on the like you could have sold me on the slasher element, but you squandered your time on middling Tale of Two Cities teen drama. Sorry, Vic. All righty then, we're gonna cut it off there and save the last two matchups for next time. Hopefully, if you're stuck in a time loop, you will not have to watch Fear Street 78 over and over again. Adios! Adios!